Hello, my name is Sam Chandra and this is Deep Sky. Each week we go into conversation, helping you to explore and understand the uncharted waters of the intersection of artificial intelligence, aviation and the future of humanity. I am an airline captain, a student of artificial intelligence and your guide to navigating the new world of aviation transformed by artificial intelligence. This week's guest is Mikhail Klassen, who is the Chief Technology Officer of Paladin AI. Mikhail has a Bachelor's in Applied Physics and Math from Columbia University, where he worked on experiments related to nuclear fusion and gravitational wave detection. He then completed a PhD in Computational Astrophysics at McMaster University before turning to Artificial Intelligence. Paladin AI are a Montreal-based startup that is harnessing the power of machine learning to create AI-powered flight instructors. A Paladin currently creates the Instruct IQ product, which is a training management dashboard that can provide highly tailored and adaptive training recommendations to help reduce the time and the cost of pilot training whilst increasing its effectiveness. Paladin aims to build instructor assistance systems on their way to their ultimate goal, which is to create a fully capable artificial flight instruction solution. This is Deep Sky. So you have a, a, a bachelor's and a master's and a PhD in physics. Is that right? That's right. All three. Now, you clearly have a fascination with the physics. Why, why did you choose that pathway? And how did you end up starting a, a pilot training AI company out of that? Yeah. So maybe rewind a little bit. When I did my undergraduate, I was looking at different universities. I had interests both in engineering and in pure physics. Mm-hmm. Ended up taking a or joining a program in applied physics. So that was sort of a happy medium at Columbia University in New York City. Nice. And part of what Columbia does that very few universities do is they have a a plasma physics research lab. So they were working on fusion power. So that was something that had, you know, excited and fascinated me from, from, you know, from, I guess my teenage years. So, and I did get to spend two summers working in the plasma physics lab, you know, helping on the experiments and some of the stuff that I did ended up getting published. So that was, that was very exciting, but you know, after, you know, after my undergraduate, I was getting married, I was moving back to Canada, and I joined my wife in Hamilton, Ontario. So that's just uh, a little bit south of Toronto. And in Toronto, or rather, at McMaster University, I was looking mm-hmm. at, okay, what do you, what's available there? And they had a program in astrophysics. So, you know, it, it interested me because I got to work on big questions, you know, astro, you got to, where's the, where's everything come from? And, you know, stars and planets and things like that. So it was an opportunity for me to to work on something that involved big questions. And there was a really good, it was a really good department for doing numerical simulation. So towards the end of my undergraduate, I'd gotten very interested in doing computer modeling. So, you know, uh, in physics, you can do a lot of blackboard math and try to find some theory that way, or you can go out and take experiments. But in the middle, there's the computational branch of physics. Right. So you get to test your theories on a computer rather than having to go and build a, a complicated experiment. So it's like you're doing running experiments in a lab that is your computer. Right. So 
my research project there was to model the formation of stars. So you end up with a very big fluid dynamics code. You're modeling how gas moves in the vacuum of space. It's attracted by gravity. It experiences turbulence. There are magnetic fields involved. There's the radiation of stars and all of these things interact according to physical laws. And so you try to build a very complicated model that includes all of the different physical laws. And then you've run the simulation on a supercomputer and analyze the results that come out of that. So for six years, a master's and a PhD, that was the work that I was doing. And it, I did, I did actually use some of the some of what I learned in, in in undergraduate, where I was doing work on plasma physics, which is you know fluid dynamics with charged particles, so it actually wasn't all right. that different. But towards the end of it, I was thinking, you know what? I've I've been in in the world of academia for many years now, and mm -hmm. do I really want to continue to pursue this? I mean, you know, the the track to becoming a a professor is is long and arduous, and tenure track positions in astrophysics were in rather short supply. And, you know, I had to be considerate of my wife's career. She's a doctor. So the two of us were both sort of pursuing our own careers and we don't want to live apart, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I was looking for something that could be more flexible. I was getting fascinated by machine learning. So, mm -hmm. you know, I was familiar with working with large data sets and doing data analysis, writing very custom data analysis pipelines. But the attractiveness of machine learning is you can just show a computer a lot of data and a particular pattern that you want it to find and it mm -hmm. goes and finds it you don't have to explicitly program you know every action that the computer program is supposed to take so it mm -hmm. it'll find the patterns in the data and learn from that so that was uh, very exciting to me i started to teach myself machine learning this opens up the whole world of like hey what's happening in ai and deep learning and automation so that got me really excited about the possibilities there. And I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. So I figured, how can I take all of these skills that I've spent years building? I can, I can code, I can write machine learning algorithms, I can analyze data. Surely these skills are valuable to some problem in the world. And it was right around this time that my father was leaving CAE. So he had, he'd worked at CAE for about 30 years. He was the chief technology, chief technology office there at one point. So very familiar with flight simulation and flight training. And we knew that mm -hmm. flight simulators produced a lot of data. And that data was not really being used to its full potential. Surely there was something in the world of machine learning that could be used to mine this data and extract more value from it than what people were mm -hmm. doing today. So that mm -hmm. was the basic premise. So we decided to form a startup together where I could leverage some of the technical ability that I had been building for years in graduate school. And he could leverage his broad knowledge of the industry, his network, and the two of us together could bring some kind of a solution to market that could improve the quality of flight training, that could make for better pilots, that could hopefully bring down the cost of training, which would help alleviate the pilot shortage, make aviation more accessible to a wider group of people who are mm -hmm. interested in flying, but just can't afford to go to flight school. Mm -hmm. So all of those were kind of the, the the noble goals that we were trying to solve, and uh, and that was the genesis of of Paladin AI. Now it's been 
it's been a few years since then. And, you know, this problem has been much, much harder than, than we initially thought. I think that's sort of right. the, the hubris of starting anything new. You figure, sure, how hard can it be? And then you start getting into the details and you realize it is very hard. I'm sure you've had experiences like that. But I think naivety is so important to have. Otherwise, you'd never, you'd never even start. And that's just, and just stay naive in, in a way. But I kind of understand where you're coming from. You go, this is a lot more than I thought. So yeah, how many years ago did you start, the, did you start this journey, I should say? Yeah. Well, I mean, we had been talking about it since about 2013, but I didn't finish graduate school until 2016 when I defended okay. my PhD. Right. So that was that was when I was able to work on Paladin full time. So yeah, that's been a little over four years now. And so the challenges that you've come across have been a little bit more than perhaps both of you had bargained for in the first place. But it's 2021 now, and you're still here, which is a positive sign. So could you just describe what your, your product is? Yeah. So the core product is uh, is Instruct IQ. That's that's what we've named it, and it is an augmented instructor dashboard. So instructors have some dashboards today. They have the instructor operator station inside the simulator that they can use to manipulate the simulation environment, you know, induce turbulence, cause things to malfunction, reposition the aircraft. Then they have a debrief station where they can replay the flight and go over some of the details. But what we add to the existing tools is an application that they can run on their iPads, and most of them already have iPads, where they can look at not just the data that came off of the simulator moments ago, but they can get a bunch of insights into that data. So we can do things like compare uh, a recent flight or the flight that just finished in the training in the simulator to past flights that this pilot may have done in the simulator or how they compared to a population of pilots in aggregate or a gold standard of pilots that were trying to get this individual to emulate, to resemble those same types of expert behaviors. We look at a bunch of different performance norms, for instance, like what are certain actions that you may have taken? You know, did you retract the landing gear a little bit too late? Or, you know, did you did you over-rotate on that takeoff? These are the kinds of things that we are evaluating in a bunch of different discrete ways to get lots of different data points about what your level of expertise is and how much your behavior resembles that of an expert pilot. And that gives us some read on what your skills are and what perhaps training needs you might need. And all of those insights are then surfaced to the instructor via the dashboard. And this assists them in making an objective judgment to grade every training activity in the lesson plan. Now, behind the scenes, we're also trying to anticipate the grade that the instructor is going to give you on that maneuver. So that's where some of the machine learning comes in. And then in addition to all of that, we're trying to build a competency profile for you as a pilot. So looking at how you performed across the entire training session, those like, you know, two hours where you were the, the pilot in command, you know, how well did you rate against the IKO competencies? There's you know, the, the eight core competencies. So there's a ninth one now. We can't do all of them because some of them are soft skills, non-technical skills like communication. So we don't, we don't try to estimate a score for those, but we do for the technical competencies. So 
in summary, you're you're building a shadow assessment and grading system for the students and the instructors to use. Is that correct? That's not a bad way to describe it. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, we, we were very clear that we're not trying to do the instructor's job. There are aspects of the instructor's job that we are trying to automate. So a lot of the grade entry, picking up on certain technical skills, but what a flight instructor will tell you is that the it's the intangible qualities that really make the pilot, the leadership skills, the crew resource management, those types of non-technical skills. And the instructor is usually the one that's best equipped to mentor the pilot, to gauge their level of thinking on those things and to coach them. And that's not an area where we are trying to infringe. The other thing too is the instructor can't see everything, right? The instructor can't see what you're doing with your rudder pedals, for instance, not easily anyway, or how much pressure you're applying to the control column. There's two pilots. They're both doing independent things and the instructor only has two eyes and they might be looking at the operator station or they might be looking at, at their charts or, you know, there's, there's the opportunity to miss things. So part of what we offer is a second pair of eyes in the flight simulator to back up the instructor to see things that they might miss. Right. The number of times I've benefited from that, from instructors not seeing me make a mistake, maybe that's a good thing, but I see what you mean. <laughs> you know, I, it's sort of instructor augmentation in, in a way. That's and right. is this just for the airline simulator environment or just the simulator environment, should I say? For now, we're targeting the flight training device. So we've done full flight simulators. We've done FTDs. We recently did uh, an FNPT. You know, we'd like to do the gamut of all different training environments. I mean, in future, mm -hmm. we see a lot of training transitioning to virtual and augmented reality. It's mm -hmm. just so much cheaper to do training in those types of environments. And they're they're getting a lot better. Yeah, I've seen the adverts of the gloves with the haptic feedback and the VR headset, and you can you think you're in a, in a cockpit, and yeah. all you have is some gloves and a headset. It's just crazy, really. Um, That's right. So you you want to sort of roll it out across all of those environments? Is that correct? We'd like to. Yeah, I mean, okay. one of the nice things is, I mean, we're we're in the business of doing competency based training. So if you mm -hmm. can evaluate competency in a full flight simulator, which is the gold standard. And you can evaluate that pilot's uh, competency in some of the other, these other environments like virtual reality. And mm -hmm. if the VR environment can tell you the same things that the full flight simulator is telling you, well, then you can make the argument to transition more of the training onto the lower level devices or, or VR mm -hmm. environments, which are so much more affordable and save the full flight simulator for your you know, your proficiency checks, you know, that can save an enormous amount of money, but you have to prove that first. You have to prove that the lower level environments are just as effective a teaching tool as the gold standard. And the way to do that is through the use of processing the data that is generated in these environments. That's right. And you can, or you can quantitatively prove that someone is just as good, therefore you need less training and they're just as competent uh, and exactly. therefore, there could be a case made to perhaps a regulator to say that we have the system, it's proven to be trustworthy, therefore, mm -hmm. 
if they use our system, can we progress this student through training quicker because he's Chuck Yeager, essentially. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. I mean, that's and that's a it's a longer term process. Obviously, you have to go through the work of gathering that data and then making the case to the regulator. But the 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 payoff is just so huge in terms of the cost of training, if you can do that. And every time that we've spoken to any regulator, any civil aviation authority about what we're doing, you know, we fully expected them to be, you know, very conservative, very like, you know, pump the brakes, you know, take it easy. What are you guys doing? It hasn't been the case. No, they've been, they've been forward looking and they see that these technologies on the horizon and they would love to be able to permit their use, their greater, their greater application. They just need evidence. And if you can supply the mm. evidence, then, you know, you, you will create the path that you need to be able to do this. Right. So before we bring the discussion in that direction, are you looking at using cameras and microphones and applying vision recognition, natural language processing and understanding and assessing those components, perhaps non-technical skills? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's something that we've, we've definitely considered and thought very hard about. When we set out to build a tool to do adaptive data-driven training, you know, we saw what some other people on the market were doing. There were, there were research companies and startups that were working on eye tracking yeah. and similar technologies. What we felt was that if we pursued that, not only might there be more competition, but there might also be more opposition from pilots, pilot unions, privacy mm -hmm. advocates. I mean, people get squeamish when there's cameras pointed at them and microphones recording their voice. They get they get nervous. So we know that some sim OEMs, they already have cameras and microphones mm -hmm. built in, but their their use is optional. I actually had my very first simulator session a few months ago with the, with the replay of the camera and the microphone. And I'd never seen that before. How did you feel about that? It was fine. I had a, a check captain supervising me the whole time anyway. So it wasn't as if I was at work just chilling, doing whatever I do in the flight deck, being recorded. It was a, a check environment, no problems. They can record me whatever they want to do, right? As long as I don't post it on the, the Yammer page for the company the next day. So right. yeah, right. So you saw it as a, maybe maybe a slightly crowded market, but also not necessarily necessary to achieve your aims? Well, we figured that if you could, if you could solve the hard problem of mm -hmm. processing the technical data from the 1,000 or so different sensors <laughs> monitoring every button and switch in the cockpit, <laughs> yeah. every malfunction, every environmental variable, all of that is recorded. And if you can process that and extract competency metrics from that data, well, then you've solved the hard problem and anything that you get beyond that is gravy, is, is, is fantastic. Like that can be, those can be extensions to the core right. product of analyzing the technical data. So this, you know, what we're looking at here is potential partnerships with companies that already specialize in eye tracking or vocal data analysis, and that those can be mutually beneficial partnerships because we supply the technical analytics and with their data, you can build a more comprehensive product that gives you mm -hmm. eye tracking or vocal data. I mean, from that, you can do a lot of interesting things. Like there's already, there's some products that do simulated ATC. So right. they do voice to text 
text to an AI that, that mocks the ATC controller right. and that speaks back to you. There's folk, you know, this speech synthesis in the AI and it's like you're having a conversation. Now it's because of all of the, you know, the strict keywords that you're using. It's a very structured conversation. It's much easier to do that than it is to do totally freeform speech. You know, that's more the the domain of a company like Google. Like that's that's mm. that's hard doing compelling, mm. you know, conversational AI. But mm -hmm. simulate ATC is a little bit more of a bounded problem. It's you know I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm I'm sure that it is, but it's it's one that is within the realm of possibility, and I know of at least one company that has a product on the market doing doing Satsi. Now, there's also uh, a company called Vocavio that does vocal tonality analytics. Mm -hmm. So, if the pilot uh, and co-pilot are talking to each other, then based purely on the tone of their voice, pitch following, mimicking turn-taking between the two conversational partners, you can already infer some things about how well those two individuals are communicating or if one's talking over the other or, you know, you know what I mean? There are, yeah. there's like some psychological research there that has been spun out into this company. That's very interesting. So you're not even doing speech to text uh, transcription at that point. It's just looking at the tonality. So there's, there's these, 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 interesting products that can be used in the pilot training environment that can give you metrics about the competency of the pilot, you know, data points that allow you to assess that dimension of competency, you know, and that's just, you know, those are just two examples. There's, you know, lots of cool stuff you can do with eye tracking as well. So could this be used in a real aircraft? Oh, absolutely. So, okay. I mean, the, the environment in a full flight simulator is already of such high fidelity that you're tracking every parameter of interest. And the data that you would get off of a quick access recorder from an aircraft, I mean, it's tracking a lot of the same things that, you know, the core flight variables, you know, pitch, roll, airspeed, throttle, et cetera. You take all of that, the actions taken by the pilot during regular line operations, and you can pass those same data streams through the algorithms that we've built to process those data streams. Mm -hmm. And our algorithms will segment them into all the different maneuvers performed by the pilot, extract competency metrics, and then provide a report on, on that particular flight. Right. Because once the data has come off the aircraft, it's the same data and the algorithm looks at it and processes it in the same way. It's just in the simulator, there's a far greater variety of scenarios that uh, are generally happening. And so you have a much richer data source to assess competency. Exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah, there's been lots of interesting research involving AI on operations data, but it often looks at things like anomalies or pilot control strategies or different behaviors, certain approaches to certain airports under certain conditions that might be of interest, you know, to avoid right. potential incidents or accidents. But in the simulator, I mean, I don't know what your training experiences have been like, but the simulator sessions that I've sat in, you know, everything's always on fire. So yeah. you, know, <laughs> you can you can simulate the types of scenarios that hopefully never occur during regular operations, mm. but that the pilot nevertheless has to be ready for. So you end yeah. up with much richer data full of very challenging circumstances. Yeah. And that's really sounds like what 
is would be of most interest when assessing someone's competency. So if we could move on to uh, more, yeah, more data specific uh, questions, whose data did you use to train your model? The start of the company was painful because this is a chicken and egg problem. Right. You can't build interesting machine learning products without data, but it's very difficult to convince a customer to hand over any data until you can show them something of interest, like yep. give me a demo, like show me, show me what you're selling and convincing them to take on faith that once they give us data, we'll be able to return something valuable to them. That's a tricky conversation. And so, mm. you know, it took a lot of like, we, we managed to find some public data on aircraft line operations that okay. allowed us to test a few different algorithms, you know, things like maneuver segmentation, anomaly detection, clustering, those types of things you can do with that, you know, and then, and then the rest was just, you know, talking to enough prospective customers until mm -hmm. you found someone who, you know, is this, has this kind of visionary mentality, who's looking ahead to the future, who's an early adopter of new technology, yep. who's willing to take that risk and let you conduct a trial where you collect data from one of their simulators and, you know, build a product around that with dashboards and insights, like knowing that it's going to be quite bare bones at the beginning, but, yeah. you know, in, in startup speak, that is your minimal viable product. It's the, the, the least that you can build that you can take out into the market that can elicit some kind of interest or, or, or business. And so getting to that point was challenging, but, you know, once we had that initial data set, we could start doing interesting things with it, visualizing it in different ways, beginning to extract features of interest, showing them to the instructors, getting feedback from the instructors. You know, they tell us what they want to do with this app, what they want to see. And then we would go and we would build that feature. And then we'd come back being like, is this what you meant? Is this what you like? And like, yeah, that's great. Now do this. And so, you know, it was that sort of iterative process, mm. you know, very like user-centered design that gave us the first version of our product and that has has been core to the evolution of instruct iq and you know you do it once then that lets you have something more compelling to show to the next potential customer mm -hmm. training center or airline that you show this product to and every time it gets better and there's more features and it's it's cooler and you know that's that's sort of how how things go slow at first but the momentum is building yeah I I understand in the non-aviation machine learning world, there's a bunch of data sets that you can use for a, to solve the cold start problem, as if it were. And in aviation, there's pretty much no publicly available data sets. Oh my goodness, no. It's all, it's all walled gardens, right? Like just try getting you know, your hands on FOQA data or something like that. It's, it's, everything is, is carefully guarded. In, in Australia, it's, it's very difficult to get your hands on, on any data. In, in Vietnam, it's a very different paradigm as if it were. The um, employee-employer relationship is very different. We we're using FOQA data for the fuel efficiency program. Mm. Obviously, we're only looking at the fuel parameters and that's all we, we saw. But it, it's incredibly rich 
data source with thousands of parameters and you can get some really interesting insights even with just an excel spreadsheet but uh, i understand how that much more difficult that must be for a third party that doesn't have their own airline i can imagine how difficult that would have been for you at the start but it sounds like you've got somewhere since then so do you even have enough data to to make a testing set i mean (laughs) i'm sure you do How, how do you how does that work for you Oh, yeah, for sure. You, you'd be surprised by how much you can do with a limited amount of data. Like, I mean, you, tr- you train an AI, for instance, to recognize takeoffs. And, you know, that turns out it's actually not that hard. Like most takeoffs look right. kind of similar. So yeah. the parameters are not all over the place. So with a limited sample set, you know, like a few dozen takeoffs or so, you can get a pretty good high accuracy model to detect takeoffs in future data sets. Mm-hmm. And then you just repeat that process for all the other maneuvers of interest. And, uh, and then you, you know, you can begin to predict instructor grades once you have them using your application on a regular basis, because now they're, they're doing grading on their applic- on the application itself. So that allows mm-hmm. you to collect data on regular use. I mean, you're, you're giving them a tool that, that's valuable to them. Like it, it does electronic grading, right? They don't have to write the grades down on a piece of paper or, you know, maybe they have a tool for electronic grading. It depends on the, on the, on the training center, but yeah, you know, some are just scribbling a note down in, in a, on a piece of paper next to a, a line for that particular part of the lesson plan. So just giving them a tool that lets them do electronic grade entry as they go to be able to bookmark certain sections of the flight that they might want to revisit during debriefing. Those are like helpful tools that you're already providing to the instructor. And as the instructor uses your application, you also get more labeled data that you can use for machine learning afterwards. So the product right now is in a sort of a a cyclical development process i know a lot of in aerospace a lot of what happens is that you you train it you test it and then you flight test it separately is your product a a continuously evolving product or do you train your model you test your model and then you freeze it and then you deploy it is that how it works for you as well yeah so the i mean the advantage is that with the ai not replacing the instructor the instructor has the final authority they're the ones that sign off on your your training session so they're Mm -hmm. the great i mean their grades are are the ones that ultimately end up against your name so we don't need to have that high degree of like careful validation because we're not yet fully autonomous if 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 you will so we can do rolling updates so as we collect more data we can retrain the machine learning models and those new models can be deployed to the customer the customer won't necessarily perceive them right away, but behind the scenes, the system that is doing the grade prediction and competency assessment is slowly getting better, is mm-hmm. getting more accurate. You can do instructor standardization with this. So if you have some instructors that will that grade quite stringently and others that are a little bit more lenient, you know, you're you're collecting data from all of these different instructors. And so in aggregate, you end up with something that is is more it balances out the sort of more uh, extreme examples there and uh, and that lets you balance your models and get a standard assessment across the board right and what do you think the ultimate manifestation would be of your system would it remain instructor augmentation forever or would you like to see it take on a more central role in pilot training yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we know that there is an instructor shortage as much as there is 
a pilot shortage. Yep. And the most experienced instructors are also those that tend to be the closest to retirement. And so there is an exodus of expertise in our industry that is concerning. Especially now. Yeah, especially now with COVID, it's, it's putting a lot of pressure on people to take early retirements. And, you know, you also have a lot of young instructors who are, you know, just out of flight school and they're trying to build their hours. And so they're instructing. They, you know, they don't have a lot of experience instructing. They could use some help. So we hope that there's a future where some of the training can be offloaded and the pilots can train on their own with a virtual instructor built by Paladin AI. Right. So, you know, you can go and you can practice uh, and that might be in a VR environment. It might be in an FTD, but ultimately, uh, you know, when you do your proficiency check, there's going to be a, a, uh, an instructor sitting behind you that validates you and, you know, make sure that everything is, is above board, but mm -hmm. we can compensate for a lot of that loss of expertise in the industry, a lot of those retirements, and we can increase our bandwidth for training considerably if we can get a good enough virtual instructor. And so it's kind of the same approach that a bunch of companies are taking around the world, very large companies. They see, for instance, I think it was, don't quote me, but one of the large oil companies are using this system to gain as much knowledge as they can from their seasoned engineers with decades of experience, put it into the system, and then it suddenly becomes this super engineer that benefits from the knowledge of decades, and then it, they can pass it on to their young graduates. So the ultimate vision would be essentially to create an AI form of instructor that has benefited from decades of experience uh, across many domains, many flying domains, I should say. To get to that point, firstly, how long, far along that process are you with the regulator? And what do you see as the roadmap to get towards a, an approved version of that? So that's not a conversation that we've started with any regulators right now. Okay. It's, it's definitely something that is very future facing right now. We're focused on, you know, the, the immediate rollout of our product roadmap that involves things like dynamic lesson plan generation and, you know, like very personalized training tools and the addition of biometrics and more accurate competency assessments. But when we get to a point in, I think just a few years time, I think we should have amassed a, a significant data set across hundreds of simulators and hundreds of instructors, maybe thousands, and uh, that there could be some early version of a synthetic instructor available at that time. And that's probably the right moment to begin having those conversations with the regulators on, well, you know, can we, can we shift some training into a more solo modality. Mm. I mean, it's, it's similar to the conversation that we had earlier about shifting some of the training down to lower level devices that are more affordable. It's, it's yep. right along the same vein. That's fascinating. Yeah. I was talking to Luke Van Dyke from the Dalian AI. He's uh, in Switzerland creating computer vision models. And I guess the pathway he's looking at for his technology is assist the pilot and then gradually give the pilot the option to do it or not, and then have the automatic pilot as the primary pilot, I guess in your case, it's assist the instructor, then we can have the, the the system doing it, then we can have the instructor doing a little bit, and then eventually it can be entirely the system. How do you know your system is correct? Is it going to just spit out a training recommendation or a score that's wrong? I mean, it's, is it you're using deep neural networks, I understand. And how do you ensure that they're 
putting out reliable outputs continuously. You know, it doesn't just mutate. That's right. Well, we're very careful which algorithms we apply where. The deep neural nets are applied in the maneuver recognition part of our pipeline. And that's an area where, you know, it the stakes are smaller there. All it has right. to do is identify, you know, that you're doing a takeoff, a landing, a steep okay. turn, or what, et cetera. And so it's it can be a black box. We don't have to go and carefully interrogate every layer of the neural network yeah. to see what it's doing. Where yeah. you really need explainable AI is in all of the assessment pieces. So that's not necessarily the, the best place to apply a deep neural net. So you know, what we do in this case in order to have explainable models is we surface to the instructors all of the different features that our algorithms are using to make their assessments. So if it gives a low grade, there'll be a readout of all the different performance norms and you'll be able to okay. see, you know, which ones did you do well, which ones did you do poorly? What were the factors that the AI took into consideration? How much weight was ascribed to each one in making that decision? And that's a lot more explainable so that, you know, if you are going and you're doing some kind of audit of the system and you're like, why did this, why did the AI give this grade? You can, you can backtrack and find the reason. Similarly, how do you grade situational awareness? Mm -hmm. Well, I can see what you did in the training session, all of the different aspects of flight that might be related to situational awareness, where a mm -hmm. pilot in possession of a high degree of situational awareness would make one decision versus another. We can flag those. And so we have a, a tool for doing a what we call a competency drill down. The instructor can click on the grade that the system ascribed that particular competency and the system will surface to the instructor. Well, it was these maneuvers that I looked at. And within these maneuvers, I looked at these different actions taken by the pilot. And those were the things that I used to make an assessment uh, of this particular competency score. So that's how we're trying to do explainable AI. We think it's a mm -hmm. reasonable approach, a defensible approach. I mean, we have to make sure that it's still producing, you know, sensible predictions. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's just dependent on having a, a decent amount of training data for it to work on. Mm -hmm. It's it's a human approach, I suppose. In real life, if you don't agree with the score that the instructor has given you, you go, why? And then they say all of these reasons and you don't open up their brain and have a look at their neurons. I mean, that's that's actually a great tangent right the the research by i think jonathan Haidt. this is like getting into like the psychology and the neuroscience of decision making most humans make decisions based on sort of gut reactions and then the prefrontal cortex makes kind of a post hoc justification for why we made that decision but in the moment mm -hmm. that we weren't thinking through a logical argument right mm -hmm. we weren't debating with ourselves we were just like no that felt right yeah and that's some biological deep neural net that's coming to that conclusion and then a, probably a whole other part of the brain that's looking at that and trying to make sense of it and coming up with a list of probable reasons for why that decision was made yeah it's a fascinating uh, area especially with aerospace especially with aviation when things have to sort of be approved and be assured and i think the consensus that is slowly emerging is that we don't need a full explainability believe it or not even for flight control systems, but we do need to trust it 100%. And that's actually a different thing, which can be obtained 
not just with this explainability magic that everyone's talking about, but that is another conversation for another three mm. hours. So <laughs> what do you see as the main challenge ahead for Paladin AI? It's a good question. Every business has various challenges. There's, I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic that has devastated our industry. So yeah. virtually every airline has zero discretionary spend right now. Mm. Everything is all about life support mm. and staunching the bleeding. I mean, we we're trying to make the case to them that actually you should be making investments in your training because when all of these pilots return from furlough that have lost recency and they're all flying again, you know, it would be great to have some measure of their proficiency before they start regular operations again. The pilot shortage hasn't gone away, right? It's yeah. just it's just been put on pause for a little bit, but it's going to come roaring back and mm-hmm. there need to be there needs to be the infrastructure that can fix that 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 bandwidth problem that we have there. Mm-hmm. So one of the major challenges for Paladin AI right now is just convincing people to make those investments now despite the fact that we're still in the midst of a crisis. I'm hoping that with the vaccine rollout worldwide, that air travel is going to start coming back towards the end of this year. I mean, IATA saying two, three years or so until we get back to 2019 numbers, but it's anyone's guess. So that's the main business challenge. We have technical challenges, you know, different features that we're rolling out, but I'm actually not too worried about those. Like there is, right. there is a step-by-step technical way to approach those. And it's just a matter of collecting data of sufficiently high quality that has the appropriate labels attached to it, and then building out those features. We have a great team and we're currently fundraising. So after our our current fundraising round, we'll be able to expand the team, add a few Mm -hmm. more engineers that will help us overcome those technical challenges and also take this product into, into a wider market as well. The last question is what would you, what advice would you give those aviation leaders out there that are thinking about AI and how it's going to manifest itself in aviation over the next decade or two decades? Well, I, I would tell them not to be afraid of it, that there's a lot of value that, that AI can, can create for you if you apply it correctly. The other danger is seeing AI as like a, you know, a, a magical black box that, you know, you could just throw any data at and it will just produce, you know, all of the things that you needed to do. Like it, it, it requires investments in people, in data scientists who can interpret that data, who can build the necessary data pipelines around that system. I mean, I'd love to convince them to talk to us and get our expertise to help them build and roll out those systems. But it's 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 not something that can just be done casually or or, or easily. It does require a certain degree of expertise to be able to do that. But the value that it can add to your organization is huge. I mean, just the example that you gave about fuel burn, a system that can take you know your your climb profile and optimize that for fuel burn can have enormous cost savings. I mean. <laughs> an aircraft burns what a third of its fuel just on the climb like uh, you know that's 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 where all the the savings can be had if you do it right so ai is great and there's a lot of really amazing use cases but they're 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 not necessarily easy to roll out well thank you so much mikhail for coming on the podcast i've really enjoyed our conversation so did i thanks for having me and perhaps we'll we'll do this again sometime 
Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Deep Sky. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation with Mikhail. To find out more about what Mikhail is building and what Paladin AI is doing, the link to the website will be in the show notes. If you have any questions about the future of AI in aviation or would like to have a chat about how AI may impact your business, company or career in the future, then please send me an email at samuel.chandra01 at gmail.com. The email address is in the show notes. Please do come back next week for another engaging conversation. This is Deep Sky.